working 12 hour days regularly and seeing that as normal. And it would be, you know, full on all the time. I've got a holiday booked. It's great. It's fine. I'll just keep going until that point and then collapse at the weekend. I cannot do this anymore. I cannot. I cannot. And I quit. Hello and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. On this edition of the Work All Happiness podcast, I'm really pleased to be joined by Dr. Yvette Ankra, MBE. She's a transformational coach and specializes in working with business owners, consultants, and recovering overachievers. She's a highly experienced coach working in supporting well-being and personal development in business. So Yvette, it's fantastic to have you on the podcast. Um, tell us about your, your early years. Tell us about your school years and what you like doing and um, how you then moved into a career in journalism. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. Um, it's an interesting thing. I didn't like school when I was little. I really didn't enjoy it. I love learning, but I didn't enjoy going to school. And I'd fight me with my mother every morning about having to go to school. Um, and I just went to a normal um, primary school in North London. Um, I, I was part of the, the old school. So the days where they used to call it the loony left, where we kind of learned about every culture, every different thing. And it was, it was fun and I, I enjoyed it. It was diverse. Um, we celebrated Diwali, Eid, um, you know, Christian festivals. I did Maypole dancing. So it was a bit of a, an interesting kind of primary school. And um, then went to um, a pretty, again, a, a normal comp in, in Highbury. Um, with that, I, you know, I got on, I was, you know, only two children from my primary school that got to go to that school. It was the school that my parents had had their hopes on. And I ended up going, going there and met some of some friends for life and we did things like latin and um by force and i still remember bits of it now and i actually ended up choosing my gcse's based on what teachers were actually going to be present so i did stuff like that i i was very practical about how i thought about things the journalism thing um i'd wanted to i've always loved writing and i'd wanted to do that for such a long time and when you have to do work experience when you're age 14 I'm like, I really want to do journalism, but I got glandular fever. So I wasn't there when they chose, uh, got chosen. I ended up being at a stockbroker's. And um, it's quite a large famous stockbroker's. And I knew that the finance world was not for me. It really wasn't. Um, and then I managed to get a opportunity when I was about 16. And I started writing then. And I started writing for um, a magazine called Art Rage, which was kind of um, like Time Out, but for the black arts and culture, really, at the time. And I wrote for them for a while and then wrote for another one called Calabash. And it was a really huge change in my world in terms of being connected to artists and musicians and seeing people of their day. And I remember interviewing an R&B artist and talking to him about his misogynistic lyrics and I was 16 and kind of when my friend was like you know trying to get his autograph and I was like no I actually want to talk to you about why you're writing this stuff 
Um, and that's what I want to be. I want to be an arts journalist. And I played music from very young as well. So that's what I wanted to do. And I decided that I was going to do a degree in it. And that probably then yeah. was the death knell for journalism for me, actually. And where did you do your degree? Oh, I did it at City University. So um, I think I looked at City, Manchester and somewhere else. And I, I remember being interviewed at City and um, for A-levels, I did um, English literature, media studies, and I did politics. And um, he said, oh, right. Um, yes, everyone does English. And he said, media, that's not a subject. He goes, politics, well, that's interesting. <laughs> I left that interview feeling so despondent and thinking, I'm not going to get into this university. But I did. Um, and it was it was an interesting kind of space of being in there. I think I was one of four black students on the journalism course. I think I was the only one to graduate out of, out of, that, out of that group. Um, and yeah, just getting involved in um, the Freedom Forum, which is a journalism organization. I was an intern there and I did that. And kind of, again, to help organize a conference on black journalism. So I was kind of, I always been into sort of activism and various things like that and looking at diversity from quite a young age. And I, I did that from, from, for a long time. Um, but I realized quite quickly after my second year, I wasn't going to be a journalist um, and started looking at alternative careers. <laughs> so. And so what, when you looked at alternative careers, what, mm. what struck you? What came to mind? What did you think you'd like to do if you wasn't going to be a journalist? I said, OK, well, what can I do with this? What else can I do? So I looked at press um, um, communications. So I looked at events. Um, I actually did a little um, bit of work experience at um, Ofsted and we had Channel 4 filming in the windows because <laughs> um, there was some, something controversial that was happening at the time. So um, I tried to find other ways that I could use the skills that I had acquired and was acquiring in different ways. And I worked at the Africa Centre as well at one point doing events and I loved that. So there was always something about events and people and collect, connecting people together and um, sharing information that was almost like a thread at that point um, in my career. I ended up working in um, the press office at a large university when I graduated. So that's kind of what I, I moved into before going into um, a PR company. Talk to us about um, sociology and how you then moved to, uh, to read and study sociology and then where that took you. It's interesting because my first degree is actually journalism and psychology and I found the sociology lectures so boring. I had no interest in them. And I was like, okay, I, I need to, I need to do this because we have to do this. But psychology was my passion more so than sociology. I kind of ended up being a sociologist by default because the areas I ended up going, going into and wanting to find out more about fitted under the realm of sociology. So when I did my master's, which was in communities, organizations and social change, I was working in the voluntary sector by then. So I'd already burnt out and <laughs> left the PR world and moved into the voluntary sector. And one of the things that struck me was how so many organizations could work better and maybe more efficiently and do something and like borrow from the corporate world and bring some of that in. So I was interested in corporate social responsibility and I'd already worked in corporate fundraising and had the joy of you know, briefing large organisations and getting them to sponsor and support small grassroots things and seeing that, that, that world. 
So I wanted to really get into corporate social responsibility. That's where I wanted to, to focus my energy. And so I, I went off and did a master's and it was a really interesting master's. However, that bit wasn't. And I found that I really loved learning about gender and race and equality far more than the corporate social responsibility. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. This is not what I planned. And then in the middle of that, I went to Ghana where my family are from and um, I decided to completely change what my thesis was going to be about and so I ended up focusing on um, second generation identity what is it that makes you who you are how you create that space and how you find your space when you are othered and that's what I ended up doing and kind of pursuing um, sociology to a PhD level which had never been a thought that I'd had. I mean, I've, I've always loved learning, loved studying. Um, I, I'm a, a constant learner, constant learner, um, but had not really, if you'd said to me at 25, you're going to do a PhD, I'd have probably said, no, nah, no, it's, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Maybe I can stop at master's. But it became quite apparent that as soon as I finished this master's, I was going to do a PhD. It was going to happen. And I made it happen. It took me a while um, for various reasons, but um it was something I was going to do and loved loved doing um my career has always been interesting and it's usually been governed by interest rather than money which is which is a different way of maybe looking at looking at things you know a, a passion for change a passion for justice um a passion for people I think that's always been the thread that's governed all the things that I've done and then after you were in May, you became a doctor Yes, yes. So my PhD is, um, again, it, it kind of extended the work I, I did there. Um, so I'm now officially a sociologist. After all this fighting against sociology, that's where I ended up. And my area of interest is about race, class, identity and belonging. So that's my sort of research specialism. Um, and that's the area that I, you know, I spent a long time working on. And again, I looked at the Ghanaian um, community as my, my thesis group, because it's, you know, it, it's a voice that I found was missing from the literature. And there was lots of studies on various groups, but none on this group. And this group has been here since the 1500s. So it's kind of, OK, let's let's kind of put that in the literature a little bit and, and give them a place. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a really interesting piece of work. And I loved it. And then my thought was, hmm, maybe when I retire, I might do another one. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's not on the cards to do another PhD just yet. But I would not be surprised if I did another one. <laughs> so our, our listeners now know that you are an expert. You're an expert in people uh, having um, taken uh, psychology as part of your degree and then now having uh, a doctorate uh, in sociology. But But let's talk about some of the practical experiences you've had because you are now famous for um, helping people with burnout um, and you describe yourself as a recovering overachiever and you mentioned it uh, earlier that you were in PR and um, you had a burnout so let's just talk a little about your personal experience so your, your, your life in PR what happened and how you've used that now to help other people well, I was working um, in my very early 20s 
in in a start as a startup I mean to to say how how kind of long ago this wasn't how it was we shared a little internet connection we had to all pull out of the ADSL line so someone else could connect um so it was quite a long time ago but it was a case of you know working 12 hour days regularly and seeing that as normal and it would be you know full on all the time and you know you when you are when you are young you think you can keep doing that and that's okay and my personality is one of I like to give and give my energy and put whatever I've got to it and I'm not going to do it by heart after a little while my body started complaining a little bit about this and made a few noises that this is perhaps not the best way forward um and I just ignored it because I'm like no 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 so I can rest at the weekends I've got a holiday booked it's great it's fine I'll just keep going until that point and then collapse at the weekends and then go on holiday and just be so tired for the first couple of days I couldn't really do much but sleep but again I thought this is what this is what you do you asked for this you said you wanted to be in this this career in this industry and I kept doing that and I also was feeling unfulfilled in other ways which is why I started volunteering and moved into the voluntary sector but I took um a point where I'm like you know I cannot do this anymore I cannot I cannot and I quit and again, at this point, I went to Ghana and I was lying there thinking, I have no job. <laughs> I have nothing to go back to. What am I doing? And then I said, right, you need to make some changes. Problem was, I took me with me. So I went to another job and did exactly the same thing again. And I'm like, OK, I'm clearly not learning these lessons because, you know, I would still burn the candle at both ends and in the middle and think it's fine holidays that's all I need a spa day that, that's it I'll have a spa day and a glass of wine even better right great it's all good and then it wasn't and I kept doing this and it took me a long time to realize that this was not sustainable and I would burn out and rest and then go and burn out again and when I actually um, decided to work for myself at this point I'm now a parent and I'm 10 plus years older than when I was when I started it all and I'm you know feeding an infant and still working at midnight and I'm like again what are you doing but did I listen no 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 so at this point my body decided to completely shut me down so I collapsed at home and managed to call a friend who took me to the doctors and looked after my child until my, my husband came back and that began a series of um, health issues. And I was eventually diagnosed with fibromyalgia. So that was the kind of time I'm like, okay, perhaps I might need to possibly slow down a bit. But my slowed it, slowing down a bit was probably not like anybody else's slowing down a bit. So at this point, I'm now working for myself, running my own network, have an infant, and oh yeah, I started a PhD. So it's not something I would ever recommend to anybody, but that's what I did. I remember even, you know, I left a hospital appointment, crossed the road and went around my network. <laughs> so my body was shouting and all I was doing was saying, well, I'm still in control. I still need to be the one that makes these choices rather than understanding the reason your body's shouting is because this isn't right for you. It's not sustainable. It's not healthy. It's not a way to live. Success does not mean you killing yourself or grinding yourself into the ground to prove anything to anybody. Success does not 
have to be defined in that way. And it took me a little while to kind of move from fighting against having this condition to seeing it almost as a self-care partner. So when it started to flare up, it was my sign to stop, to slow down, to do something differently. Till the point I got to where I actually no longer have any symptoms, I don't have any issues, I'm completely fine, and I my, my body does not even need to have a whisper before. I'm like, okay, I heard you, I'm lying down, yep, I'm delegating that, yep, I've got that holiday booked, and yes, I'm taking that day off. Um, but that took me a long time and a long journey, and I kept thinking it was everything else apart from me. And so... Given now that we know that you've got a very personal experience around burnout and how it feels and how hard you push yourself and also the, the technical understandings you have around people with psychology and um, sociology, mm. how do you now use that to help people with burnout? Well, what I did was I, I trained as a coach um, quite a long time ago. And then I decided to um, look at different modalities. So I am a neuro-linguistic programming master now and a performance coach. So I use a lot of those um, tools when I work with clients and they bring in psychology, they bring in um, meditation, hypnotherapy, lots of different tools to help people kind of understand a lot more about who they are, what happens when they behave in certain way and outcomes. So I use that. I also spent um, some time training within therapies. So I use something called emotional freedom technique as well, which can be used for people with PTSD as well as phobias and anxiety. So I use a lot of that knowledge to help um, my clients who mostly are women, but not all, um, often high achieving, similar to myself, and who are often exhausted. Um, they've on the way to burnout or have burnt out and want to have a different life and want to find a different way to, to be. So I kind of took all of the things I learned and my personal experience to help to help others. And I love talking about it. I will happily give a talk anytime because if I can help just one person recognize that maybe it's time to change, I've, I've done what I'm here for because we don't have to, to live like this. You know, success does not have to come at the cost of your health. Um, I sometimes say that, you know, I want people to walk out of a job if they're gonna leave rather than to be carried out. And I meet a lot of people who have changed careers after they've been carried out of the job. And, and what tips would you give to our listeners about balancing their work life and how to avoid burnout? Well, listen to yourself, literally check in with your body, find out if you're okay with things, um, learn some boundary management, no is a complete sentence. So, you know, if it's not for you, you don't want to do it, you can say no. Because um, often if you're saying yes, you're saying no to yourself. And that's not a good thing to, to do. And also thinking about balance, I use boundaries rather than balance, because Sometimes if we're striving for balance, that also puts more pressure on us for things to be just so, rather than saying, actually, I'm gonna be flexible about how I do things. Having that flexibility means you can move and flow in a way that works for you. And so, for example, I normally don't take calls around 5 p.m. because I'm with my son. And that's my general rule. Occasionally, I will move that rule by choice, 
but I'm not making it a standard every day I'm going to be doing this. So I have that boundary between my personal time and my, my work time. But it's like, it's okay if I move that today. But I'm not going to be doing that as a golden rule. And just being flexible so that you, you know, that 10 minute call means you don't maybe have an hour stress the next day. Take the 10 minute call and then you can go back and do the things you want to do. And um, you became a charity trustee at a very young age, mm. 23, I think. Yes. Um, so tell us about that, because not only are you doing all this fantastic work at helping people um, with burnout and uh, diversity and inclusion and equality, um, you, you're also involved in charity. So how did that start? Well, my first trustee position was with a group called Apples and Snakes, and they are a performance poetry organisation, and they were a lot smaller then, and they have grown. And um, I used to love going to the performances, and I'd also go by myself, because my friends weren't necessarily big fans of performance poetry. So I'd go by myself and then created friendships by because I'd turn up and meet people there. And my former English teacher actually was part of the board, and he said to me, do you know, do you want to come along and do you want to be involved because we need a young person <laughs> as a voice I was like, okay um so I did and it became and at that time I was still working within marketing so I brought in that kind of expertise to the board and kind of learn about how boards worked through that and was there for quite a while and saw it go you know from very small grants to very large grants and expanding and growing it was really beautiful to see how it changed and moved and then moved to a new venue so I kind of stayed with it until it got to that point and then I I kind of left and I've done that with quite a lot of organizations um I'm at the moment I'm a non-exec on a um, group called Roots to Wellbeing which is local to where I live I'm, I'm out in Harlow in Essex and they're all about supporting SEN children um helping people have access to um therapies and support whatever their income supporting people you know with even just filling out forms if people haven't got the the ability to, to fill out the forms they need to to get the access and support they're willing to go and do that we do nordic walking we do you know art therapies um you know we've got little a little sort of nursery almost that's opened because so many children with the pandemic had never socialized um, and their parents hadn't been able to meet other parents. So we've created that space as well. And then helping um, those children to now move and get ready as they grow so that they can be ready for school. So doing a range of different things. Um, and I'm just passionate about helping those who wouldn't ordinarily be able to access things because of money, because of background, because of um, ability sometimes just you know so being able to no matter where you are where you're from you know what your ability is you can still have a good quality of life you can still excel you can still succeed you can still do all of that and those are things like I'm always really passionate about and, and tell us um how you see the world at the moment I mean obviously you're an experienced coach and you work on supporting people with well-being and mm. personal development um what does the world look like to you sort of post-COVID um, and all the things that are going on? There's a lot of anxiety and a lot of increased workloads. One of the things I, I noticed, particularly during COVID, was 
the lack of um, space between work and private life that just seemed to disappear and those boundaries are so important so you would have um, people who've got bosses that decide to work at 5am which is great that's fine if you wish to work at 5am but you can't expect your staff to be available to respond immediately to your every every whim and also you know or going into late into the night you know I'd be speaking to clients and they'd be like I'm really sorry my boss is calling me because that boundary of nine to five went for quite a lot of people so having to manage that and for those I've worked at home for more than 10 years but a lot of people haven't worked at home and being able to navigate home life whether it's the physical space or dealing with children or partners or pets <laughs> it's usually a cat that walks across a zoom call or something um finding how they manage that was also difficult and now what I'm seeing is the transition back into the office is quite anxiety inducing for many and the relationships that people have with colleagues and teams it's some people have um, started jobs during the pandemic and never met their colleagues in person so it's how do people get team dynamics how do people communicate with each other and engage so some of that needs a lot of work. I've said with when I'm thinking of organisations that I'm involved with, that's that's been a big change. Um, and just as I said, levels of anxiety have always been <laughs> interesting, but they just feel a lot higher. And teaching people how to manage their well-being is even more necessary, I think. And one of the things I also talk about is how organisations can also help with that as well. Um, because it's not going to be business as usual. You can't expect it to be business as usual. People are not the same as they were. We are always changed by our experiences. And you've got changed people coming back into your organisations. So you need to kind of have some more compassion in how you engage with people. And compassionate leadership is something that I think hasn't happened in some places and needs to, and is something people need to think about a lot more going forward. And obviously through COVID, um, a lot more people work from home. Uh, do you see that as being a good thing? Uh, do you see that as being a more challenging thing? Um, how do you feel about the balance of that going forward? A lot of people have said that, you know, we're going to see a fundamental change now and we will have hybrid working and people won't go back to the office. So as a sociologist and psychologist, how, how do you view that? I think for some people, it was brilliant. For some people, it allowed them to take stock to really kind of reassess what they want. And now they can ask for those things, particularly if they've wanted it and the organisation has said, that's never going to happen. Um, my husband works in the city. His whole life, he's, you know, 25, almost 30 years in the city. He never worked from home until the pandemic. And he's enjoying it a bit, but he actually likes being back in several days a week he likes to be able to go back in and for some people it is necessary for their well-being to be with others to connect with others to constant you know to have that support and if your living environment is not comfortable if you don't have that if you're working off an ironing board in the corner somewhere it's not great you know a lot of the younger people found it was better for them to be in the office for me, I said I've worked for home for a long time, I thoroughly enjoy it and like to get out on occasion, but I'm quite happy at home. It's going to be hybrid more, but some organisations are being very um, 
very direct about how they would like their staff to be. And some are saying, right, we want everybody back in. We know it's going to take a little while, but they want everybody back in. Um, and I think with those, they're going to have to acknowledge that some of their staff will never be completely comfortable. Some of their staff will leave. Um, and even what does back in look like? It might be four days a week. It might not be five days. It really might not. Um, the commute alone just drains a lot of people. They're exhausted. Um, and, you know, some people took this as an opportunity to move further away because they're not coming in anymore. They can still do their job and they can have a different quality of life where they can you know, have a bit of more space, particularly people in London. I mean, I left London 10 years ago now. And you've got far more space if you're outside and it costs you a lot less as well. So if you're, you know, just starting out, you don't need to, you don't need to be in London anymore. It was, it was the hub, it's not the hub anymore or any major city to be honest. So I think you're gonna see, you're gonna see changes, you're gonna see resistance, you're gonna see a lot of anxiety. And depending on how the organization handles that will depend on the outcome of how they, what they get from their staff. If they are willing to be empathetic, open, flexible, they'll find they've got some loyal, supportive and happy staff. If they're not, people are gonna walk because there's loads of jobs available now. They're no longer tied and they don't feel as tied. A lot of people have discovered the pleasures of remote working from somewhere sunny. It's a different world. It has changed the world completely. And, and on well-being, to, to finish with that, um, over more recent years, there's been a much bigger focus on well-being, well-being in the workplace, um, people, uh, talking about their anxiety, uh, depression. Um, is that because the workplace is more demanding? Or has there been another change? Has it always been that way and people just didn't talk about it? So what's your view of, of well-being in the workplace? Is it is it getting worse? Is it getting better? Or is it the same as it's always been? I think it's always been, in particular environments, it's always been quite pressured and there's been high expectations. And it was almost if, if you didn't cut it, you left. But now people feel more um, open to voice things. And I think, to be honest, that's been led by the younger generation. I think the younger generation have said they're not putting up with certain things or they want a life a certain way. My generation didn't do that. We just accepted, really. We were grateful to have the job. Our expectations of what our work life was supposed to be like probably weren't that high. We have different expectations now and different, um, different needs and being able to talk a bit more. I say a bit more because it's still not very open when people talk about mental health and well-being. There is still stigma attached to you declaring a mental health condition. So people will, they may feel a bit more likely to say they feel a bit stressed. They can say that now, but they might not say if they're both bipolar, for example, they may not feel comfortable to do that. But given that I once worked in an organisation where we're not weren't allowed to use the word stress, I think we have come quite a long, a long way. Um, and the issues that I that I see, however, are when it's almost like a sticking plaster. We will have this uh, wellbeing hub that you you know you can log into and <laughs> watch a couple of videos. That's not enough. It's not enough as a resource for people. Um, we need to train more people on mental health and well-being. We need spaces where 
it's an open culture and they're not going to feel penalized or that their job will be put in jeopardy if they disclose these things and if they say actually do you know what i'm really not coping today it means that they're going to get fired we still are not there we are still not there and and what would be your advice to those people your last piece of advice in this podcast to people who are feeling worried anxious about work get support go and find someone to speak to um if it's if there is a space within work that you can if not go externally but you know do not try to to just do it all alone um asking for help is a sign of strength it really isn't a weakness and you'd be surprised how many people feel as you do Dr. Yvette Ankara, MBE, thank you very much for um, being on this podcast and sharing your enormous wealth. We're very grateful to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work.